There are multiple ways to keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast. Through our Instagram handle, the Wolf Connection Pod, and for comments and questions, send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some more. So Arthur Leffo gave us a name uh, and we followed up and we now have this gentleman on the podcast. He is a wildlife biology PhD student at, the U- at Utah State University. He also just got appointed as an associate researcher for the Northern Rockies Conservation Cooperative in May. He's the conservation outreach manager at the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. He has a long list of things to do. We just got back from in the field. He is Aaron Bott. Aaron, it's a pleasure to meet you, man. How are you doing? How was everything in the field? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Things in the field are always better than things at the office. <laughs> yeah, I had a good time out there. You, get, you got a pretty cool office behind you, though. Just tell, I mean, nobody can see this, but what do you got back there? You have a, a couple of skulls and things like that. What do you, what do you got there? I, I do. This is, this is my garage office. Um, I've got everything in here from, uh, from a weight bench to um, mule deer skulls and wolf skulls and mountain lion skulls, just things that I work on and collect in the field. It's kind of like a natural history museum meets Gold's Gym, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Obviously, I had to stay in shape for all the stuff that you're doing. I, the, the, the thing that intrigued me most, and I'm sure Stephen as well, is just really understanding that your family roots run so deep out in the American West. I believe your ancestors, from what I'm reading in your bio, they settled in the mid-1800s, so a long lineage just describe that for everybody out there, what that's been like as really a family at the forefront of settlement in the West and understanding the culture that is out there and that's been prevalent for over 150 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got a deep sentimental attachment to the American West, uh, specifically the American Mountain West. Uh, My family moved out here straight from Europe, actually. They uh, joined the Mormon church in the early 1800s in Scandinavia and the British Isles. And uh, Brigham Young was leading the Mormon pioneers out here to what was then Mexican territory. Um, it, it became a part of the United States. But uh, yeah, we, my family settled out here, everything from southeastern Idaho down through central and southern Utah. Uh, six generations ago, right? Um, It's definitely given me a lot of perspective on the evolving ideas of American conservation, particularly the national park system. Um, We were here before the world's first national park, and obviously there were a lot of indigenous peoples out here too, but uh, my family has seen the idea and understanding of how we coexist with nature evolve for the last and 175 years. Uh, if you're not from this region, you might not be aware that this last weekend was Pioneer Day. So we celebrated 175 years of being out here. And my family's been here the whole time. So it's, it's something that I care a lot about. I haven't really traveled very well. Um, I'm kind of ashamed to say. So most of my, my experiences are here in the Mountain West, um, specifically Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and Utah. And uh, I love Mm. it here. What's that like just having that deep sentimental value? Because you've jumped right into the nature field, the conservation field. Was that, I guess, ingrained in you at such a young age that there was no no other path? Or what was that like growing up for you having that type of deep family history and those roots to, to ultimately get you to where you are right now? Yeah. Um, great question. I grew up in a very outdoor focused world. Um, I got my first job working in and around Yellowstone national park when I was 14 and I was working as a backcountry guide and outfitter, um, 14 all the way on, uh, through my college years working for different organizations and groups. And frankly, 
you take it for granted when you've got it in your backyard. Right? Um, the fact that I had such uh, such an, an impressive array of biodiversity right out the door, uh, grizzly bears and and moose and elk, etc. Yeah, you don't really understand or appreciate what you've got and what others don't until uh, you go to college and you start to interact with people who are coming from across the country into your school. And uh, yeah, then you, you find out how unique of an experience you had growing up. And that's kind of what happened to me. Um, I, I really just began to ask myself, you know, what is it that I've had? And I, I want to work hard to try and protect it and preserve it and propagate it wherever possible. What about when you were you were really young. What did your what did your life look like in in the context of the area and your surroundings? What are some of your fondest childhood memories growing up near near Yellowstone? Um, my grandparents they had a cabin that was just a couple miles from Yellowstone National Park's uh, border, and I grew up there hiking and backpacking <laughs> with my dad and with my grandpa. I remember learning to fly fish at a really young age. Uh, we were big anglers. Um, yeah, just, just the complexity and beauty of the area, the retreat, um, you know, kids are told stories and I always thought about dragons and castles and, and just this fantasy <laughs> land that I had, uh, really, a, a solid material foundation to, to draw parallels between the stories and the reality that I was living. Um, I loved it. It was, it was beautiful. Um, since this is a wolf podcast, I'll say that one of my very strongest, uh, most emotionally led memories is when wolves were reintroduced uh, into Yellowstone National Park in central Idaho. I was five years old when that happened. And, you know, when you're five, you don't understand what's going on. I, I just suddenly realized or recognized that there was a lot of wolf paraphernalia in and around Yellowstone. <laughs> And everyone was talking about it. And when you're five, you know, the biopolitics don't really come into play. You just think, wow, wolves are cool. You know, I don't know any, anything about their ecology or biology, but I think they're a really interesting animal. And I remember hearing long discussions by my, from my grandparents and my parents about wolves. And um, come to find out as I matured, uh, they were very opposed to wolf reintroduction or at least very ambivalent to it happening. They thought it wasn't a good thing for multiple reasons. And uh, um, I grew up with that kind of being ingrained in me. I, I didn't understand, again, uh, everything that had happened in the 90s, but suddenly everyone's complaining <laughs> about wolves and what they are, what they're not. And uh, yeah, eventually, like I said, to make a long story short, I went to college and said, you know what? I should learn to appreciate what I have in my backyard a little bit more so I started to, to work with wolves and other animals do you remember your first wolf sighting or or experience or even just signs yeah yeah I do um again I was working summers so uh I had this incredible job to work in some of the most rugged country in the lower 48 states so a really really rural really remote uh landscape and I remember the first time I encountered wolf sign, I was probably, I was probably 14. Yeah, probably when I started working, 14, 15. And um, saw these huge tracks, you know, in the middle of the trail. And uh, just thought, man, that is, that's something else, right? You, you hear about wolves, you see grizzly track, you see grizzly scat, you see moose and elk and, and all this other stuff. But the wolf is very secretive, right? I'd even at that point actually... Uh, come across a mountain lion carcass once. Wow. You know, that's great. Wow. That's it's pretty cool, right? Um, but that being said, the wolf was a different beast, right? It was something that had a reputation and it was something that you didn't see. Um, if anything, you might get lucky and hear them howl in the evening. And that was just cool to think that there's there's a group of animals out <laughs> there that you are never encountering, but they're probably aware of you. Yeah. And um, it was maybe a year or two after that that I actually saw my first wolf, and it was in the same region, so the backcountry of Yellowstone National Park. I was um, guiding some folks through there, and uh, 
a very meadowy kind of marshy landscape. And uh, there's this big old, very pale gray, almost white wolf that uh, was leaping. It was bounding through the, the meadow at a distance. And I thought, wow, that is, that's crazy. <laughs> that's a big dog. Um, big one. But yeah, that, that was my first, that was my first encounter with a wolf in the wild. And it was in the wild. It wasn't from a road. It wasn't from a vehicle. It was, it was cool. What was that feeling like for you? Cause it's, it wasn't just your first sighting. I'm sure it was some of the people you were guiding's first mm-hmm. sighting. What was the, do you remember collectively what the emotions were that were happening for you, the group that was there? What, what was that experience like for everyone? Well, I was with um, a friend who was guiding and um, that story quickly became a legend, right? And if you've seen a wolf, then suddenly you're an expert. <laughs> of course, <laughs> or anything. You know, right. right, right. I was a teenager and uh, you wanted to talk about Yellowstone wolves. I could tell you all about the one time I saw a wolf in the backcountry and um, my friend felt the same way. And uh, it was interesting because we had other friends who weren't there at the time. Um, but just, I mean, that that simple but very mythic encounter in the woods was realized by my friends who weren't even there at the time. They started to adopt the story. And I actually remember hearing one of my other friends uh, telling the story to a group of guests like he was there, but he wasn't there. Um, But it, it was just, it's that electrifying, right? It's that, it's that exhilarating to think, wow, I encountered truly an animated symbol of wilderness in a human dominated world. Yeah. And just that glimpse is enough to change your life. Yeah. So that was that the thing, was that the instance that propelled you forward once you got to college and you said, I'm going to, were wolves from that moment on your focus or were you just about all things wild in the West, the bears, moose, elk, whatever was there? What was your, how did that focus come into how did the focus come into focus, I guess, is my question. Yeah, I wasn't super keen on studying wolves, um, even after that experience. Um, I knew that going to college was important. I put myself through college, you know, working guiding jobs, but I also worked farming. And um, after, after I finished getting my undergraduate degree, I just thought I would farm for the rest of my life, which I wasn't particularly keen on. And having at that time worked for a number of years in and around Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton National Park with Wyoming and Idaho, I was networking. And really, it was the networking experience that transformed me. Um, I met some incredible biologists, really big names that I didn't appreciate at the time, some really rugged, very fascinating individuals who cared about the places that I cared about. Um, But unlike me, they were proactively working to protect those locations. And um, eventually I just hit a a point where I said, man, I want to be like you guys. You know, I want to, I want to be a wildlife biologist. I don't want to tell people about what you guys are doing. I want to be doing it and telling people. Um, So I, again, I I just networked and I um, found out that I needed to go back to school, get a, a graduate degree. Um, cause it's a very competitive field to work with wildlife, especially in that part of the world. And at that point, as I began to digest and, and really fully appreciate my family history and my personal history in the region, um, I kind of looked at it, at my future career in two different ways. Um, I was focused on conservation, um, specifically conservation of what's called the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Um, there's a lot of problems, right, that we have in conservation today with climate change and globalization, et cetera. Um, but one of the most immediate threats that Yellowstone still faces today is uh, a loss of habitat for wild animals. And simplistically put, there's kind of two ways that you can try and protect this ecosystem and others. Um, but it it really boils down to working to protect large mammal migration routes um, like elk and pronghorn and mule deer, et cetera. If you can work to protect habitat so these migrations continue to happen, then you're obviously gonna have a 
an umbrella effect and you're going to start to protect habitat for lesser um, lesser sized species, right? Smaller animals, et cetera. Um, so that's one way that you can work to protect the Yellowstone ecosystem. And another very um, simplistic, but also effective way to work to conserve the habitat and the ecosystem is to try and mitigate carnivore-human conflicts, um, which has got some sex appeal, right? Like carnivores are cool. They've got big teeth. Um, but we as humans have a very, very complicated history with all things with big teeth, right? Because they not only can be potentially life-threatening to us, but they also can threaten our our security or our economy um, or just our perception of, of how the world ought to run. And where I grew up, it was usually bears that were most problematic, um, specifically grizzly bears. They caused a lot more uh, depredation and property damage than wolves. And uh, I thought, man, I've got a unique perspective. I've got, you know, the right networking. I should try and work with bears. And I, I pushed really hard to work with grizzly bears for a while. And uh, it's ironic because since then, I actually have been able to work with grizzly bears a bit. Um, but by default, a wolf uh, graduate project opened up um, with Yellowstone National Park. So I needed to do a, a thesis project for my master's and I was trying to get in with bears and something with wolves opened up. And it was in the back country with the Yellowstone Wolf Project. And I took it and I ran with it. And since then, you know, you always fall in love with what you know most. Mm -hmm. And my experience and knowledge about wolves has greatly surpassed my knowledge of bears and therefore my interest in bears. Um, still a cool group of animals, bears. Um, but yeah, now I'm in the wolf field. So I've stuck with it. I've persisted. I finished my master's degree and continued to work with the Yellowstone Wolf Project. Um, and now I'm working on a doctorate researching wolves and it's kind of all over the lower 48 states, really. I'm studying wolves. Wow. Sounds really exciting. And just being outside all the time has to be great. But aside from that, aside from the obvious, really, in your mind, why, why protect ecosystems? Why devote your life to protecting ecosystems? Why protect bears? Why protect wolves? Why protect any of it? Why is it important to you personally, do you think? Personally, um, it's most important because I have kids and I want the same wild experiences that I had growing up to be around for my kids. Yeah. And my grandkids. Totally. That's, that's really what it boils down to. It's something that uh, has truly been a part of my identity and I want my children to experience those things um, on a grander scale. It's not too cliche to state that everything's connected, right? And that if the, if the ecosystems start to collapse and fall apart, then that is negatively going to impact us. So let's, let's work to try and selflessly not only have our own securities, um, but let's also work to, to help others who are to come after us. Well, speaking of your, your children while we're here, how do, how do you, how do you make this all a part of their life or, or how do you bring this into their awareness regularly? Well, I work as a government, um, employee as a wildlife professional, a biologist. Um, so I not only work with wolves, but I also work with a lot of other different critters out here, um, bears and mountain lions and buffalo and beavers and otters, et cetera. Um, and I bring my oldest boy who's three along with me on almost everything. So he's had the opportunity to, you know, handle mountain lions that are, uh, darted and bears and beavers and stuff. And he gets such a big kick out of it. You know, it's, it's kind of fun because you're taking away the, the veil of mystery that most of us, including myself had to penetrate at some point in time or maybe never will penetrate you know it's like yeah. see an animal yeah. that's wild but as soon as you handle it and process it um it, it becomes more real more raw and anyway he's had that experience since day one so i i take him in the field even at his young age as much as possible and uh it's fun crazy yeah, that's awesome that is a great way to grow up i yeah. um, it's you always think you li you lived it 
Aaron. And now just to pass that along, I, I can only imagine if I was yeah. that, that age to be like out in the field handling or just seeing something like that up close, I would have lost my mind as a three-year-old, you know? It's just, yeah, that's going to stick with them forever, you know? We take for granted what is uh, often yeah. overly exposed to us. And I think he's like, oh, it's just another kitty cat. It's like, no, that's a mountain lion you're handling, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you take him camping and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. He's Does he, he likes that? Yeah, he's fun. He's a, I mean, he keeps asking about, you know, trucks and dinosaurs and stuff like that. That's what but, <laughs> dinosaurs. Yeah. I love it. You're going to have to become a paleontologist at some point and I pick know. up some dino bones. <laughs> so, I mean, with with that, it's it seems like, what, I guess sticking with the personal stuff just for a little bit longer, what are you, was there anything you're trying to possibly do differently in raising your children that, or, or the experiences or the, or the perceptions of these animals that you're doing now with your kids that you saw happen in your childhood or, you know, anyone who came before you that you're just, maybe you're trying to change or do you not regret any of the, the way that things happened as you, as you were a kid in terms of the perception of the wildlife and the animals and things like that? Um, great question. My dad is the best dad on earth and uh, he has such a deep, reverent respect for all life forms that I've always admired that. Um, he told me once that he wanted to be a veterinarian when he was a kid. Mm. I don't know if he actually seriously considered that or if it's just one of the right. of a passing fancy that all kids have right. thinking about what they'll be when they grow up. But um, that always stuck with me because my dad truly acted um, with compassion and concern when it came to anything that was alive, um, wild animals, he really, really did respect. There's one thing that maybe I'm trying to do a little bit different is I'm taking it to the next step. Um, my dad was not a biologist by training. And therefore, there's a lot of uh, questions about specific species or about the ecology of, of a certain species. And, and my goal as a father is to try and provide the facts my kids and I don't expect them to want to grow up to be biologists maybe they will maybe they won't um, but I do want them to at least know the facts and I want them to not only say wow you know a wolf is so cool I want them to say wow a wolf is so cool and it's cool because it behaves this way and that way and it's capable of doing this and that um, I, I really believe in um, when we tame something, and that's, that's maybe a loaded term, but when we tame something, when we become familiar with it, we begin to appreciate and care more about it. Um, as a guide at a young age, you know, the point was to get to the end of your, your trek, your expedition, and see the waterfall or the top of the mountain. And I had a friend, an older friend, who actually had a PhD in biology, and he was so fascinated with everything that you came across along the way. And as I followed in his footsteps, I would learn about, you know, the spring beauties or the glacier lilies or about the, the rhyolitic soil and the lodgepole pine trees. And I'd learn about all of these beautiful details that are so often overlooked. And the more I learned, the more I fell in love, right? And I think that that's, that is love right? If, if it's true love, whether it's for a place, for a species, or for um, a person, the more you get to know them, the more you begin to, to care about them and uh, mm -hmm. consider your relationship with them or with it through a more selfless lens. And so my, my great objective as a father is to try and educate um, my children as much as possible. That's powerful. It really is. That's, that's awesome that you're doing that. And Again, I can't speak enough to the fact that it's it's teaching something different from a different lens, and that's I think important, obviously, in what you're doing as a profession. And I think globally, what we're trying to you know have an effect on and and save these places and save these species and and things of that of that nature. So when you when you ultimately get that position at the Yellowstone Wolf Project, 
and I believe you're still, obviously you're still involved. The field of study from what I was reading uh, in your background is the, the reproduction, the wolf reproduction in the Southwest interior. So really in a spot where people don't necessarily, I guess, see wolves as often, it's more of a, uh, I believe there's a lot more snow there. It's, it's not easy to find them. So what's the, how did the project come together? And then ultimately what are the goals and what are you trying to achieve with this study or have you achieved so far? Yeah. Um, to put a little bit of perspective onto my relationship with Yellowstone's wolf project, you first have to recognize that, you know, wolves were eradicated from the lower 48 States um, in the 1960s and seventies or by the 1960s and seventies. And that included places like Yellowstone. Um, wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park in 1995 and 1996. And uh, since that time, Yellowstone, under really the leadership of my supervisor, Doug Smith, and also now Dan Staler, um, these two phenomenal biologists, we have learned more about wolves, their biology and their ecology in the last you know, 27 years than all of the years of the human wolf experience before that combined. Um, it's just been an incredible process for anyone to be a part of because of the complete history that we've had um, studying wolves in Yellowstone. Again, you're handling the 31 wolves that were brought down from Canada and taking blood samples and you're marking them with collars and then you put them on the landscape and you have this incredible opportunity to not only continually radio collar them and study them and, and monitor predator prey relations, but you also have this very unique experience where you can observe wolves from the road. Um, most of Yellowstone National Park is uh, a lodgepole pine desert. It doesn't have a lot of great habitat for wildlife, but the northeastern part, uh, known as Lamar Valley, uh, it does have good habitat. And there's a lot of elk there and a lot of buffalo, a lot of things that carnivores eat. And um, coincidentally, you've got a road going through it. So you can observe wolf behavior in a way that no one had ever been able to do before. Um, my experience and connection to the Yellowstone landscape was on the exact opposite side of the park where um, you can't see a lot because of the precipitation, uh, eight times as much precipitation in the southwestern corner as in the northeastern corner. Um, so a lot of snow, very buggy, uh, dense forests. And since Yellowstone reintroduced wolves, most of the wolves have, again, been in the northeastern part of the park, but occasionally we have wolf packs that are in the interior. Um, and less is known about them. Uh, it's easy to understand how wolves interact with their prey when you can see them from the wolf, excuse me, when you can see them from the road, but um, not as many elk in the interior. So what are wolves eating? Uh, what is their spatial persistence on the landscape? What's the turnover rate? And is their recruitment, is their reproduction. Anyway, that's just a long way of saying that I had backcountry experience in the park's interior, specifically where uh, there had been a wolf pack and we weren't sure if the wolf pack was still there. And uh, I approached Doug Smith. Um, I, I bugged him, he always teases me about this, but I, I was kind of a, a pain. <laughs> I pressured him and pressured him and said, Hey, I've, I've got the experience to do this. Will you take me on? And he said, sure, go get them. And, uh, really my study became very, um, field based, um, very, very interesting as a case study, just to look at how wolves were persisting in this very high risk, low resource area, high risk because uh, wolf hunting is um, very aggressive in that part of, uh, Yellowstone national park, just outside of, of the park, excuse me. Um, and also low resource because you don't have the elk and you don't have the bison down there. Um, so yeah, it's been a fun study to look at how wolves do persist in that area and, and uh, documenting their reproduction, again, the spatial persistence. Uh, we're finding that they eat a lot of sandhill cranes and beavers, you know, that's something that isn't truly appreciated. It's just how adaptive the wolf is. It doesn't just have to eat big things. It can live off of just about anything, right? Rodents and and uh, birds alike. So 
um, yeah, it's, it's been fascinating. And, uh, very recently we've seen a turnover in the pack and, and changes, uh, based off of, uh, hunting regimes outside of the park by humans on wolves. And it's just an honor to be a part of that. So I, I continue that relationship and give what aid I can to that grand undertaking, the Yellowstone wolf study. Were, were pack sizes smaller in the areas where resources were, well, less resources, but really smaller, smaller prey items were, were, were pack sizes just generically smaller? Yeah, they were. Um, so recruitment was standard. You typically have, you know, five or six pups born every year in uh, April. But the survival rate of the pups uh, wasn't particularly high. And I don't have the answers as to why that would be, except um, I know that hunting outside the park uh, often harvested young wolves, even pups. And uh, sometimes it's just dangerous being a wolf, right? You know, you're, you're hunting something that's a lot bigger than you. It's a moose, it's an elk, even if it's a deer, and all it takes is a kick to the head and, and it's game over. So um, <laughs> typically by the end of the year, we had, you know, three or four wolves that were left in the pack. And then you'd have five pups in the spring and then you'd whittle back down to three or four wolves by the end of the year. Did you get a chance to see a, a beaver actively being hunted? No. Um, yeah. I've come across lots of carcasses um, consumed by wolves, put up trail cameras. As far as I know, there's actually only been one documented case of an individual who was actually a hunter in Minnesota who came across the beaver being attacked and then killed by a wolf. So we know that we know that wolves eat beavers. It's, it's been documented for a very long time. In fact, aside from humans, wolves generally are the number one predator of beavers. Um, hmm. But it's not observed very often. Um, that one incident where someone did observe it, they had their phone out and they videoed it. Yeah, I think I asked somebody else this before and they had the same answer. I don't know why I'm so personally curious with how wolves <laughs> hunt a beaver and what part of them they eat first, but I am really curious to know that. But this is, I got the same answer last time, so. Yeah, a lot of patience. I know that um, Joe Bump, he's out of uh, Minnesota and he's over the Voyager National Park uh, project and Tom Gable, they have documented a lot of beaver hunting and it's mostly a personality trait more patient than yeah. is he's the guy i asked actually now that you yeah. mentioned it yeah it's it's page yeah it's patience patience and persistence which is two things that they they have really well we um we talked uh before we started about uh utah not having a a, a current wolf population at the moment what um what do you think some of the reasons are for that, seeing that it's it's your own backyard, it's your home state, are, do you think that obviously wolves were taken out of the landscape a long time ago in Utah? What do you think there is a a chance for them to repopulate, to migrate down, or is this a state or a place where they can't naturally habitate mm. or uh, be accepted in that area? Well, wolves have a tremendous reputation. And unfortunately, a lot of their reputation is based off of myths. And it's not uncommon for there to be a lot of wolf animosity, uh, not just in the West, but everywhere. You know, it's, it's a, one of my favorite quotes is from a friend and a professor, uh, Susan Clark out at Yale. And she says in her book, Large Carnivore Conservation, that despite being biological entities, large carnivores are often symbolized um, as emotions. And I think that that's very true, right? So often the mythos uh, outweighs the validity of, of data. So that's just a way of saying that it's difficult to get people on board with large carnivore reintroduction and restoration projects. So wolves once ranged in Utah, um, just like everywhere else, they were exterminated probably by my ancestors. I've looked actually to see if I can find any um, wolf hunting pictures in the black and white from the 1800s, um, but you know I, I haven't found any that are in my family. Um, but no doubt they did. They shot at them, and, and eventually they were eradicated. 
Um, wolves were brought in, as I'm sure most of your audience is aware, into central Idaho and into Yellowstone National Park uh, because they were listed as being regionally extinct or, or threatened in this particular case. Um, so it took aggressive involvement, you know, it took a lot of manual labor to actively bring wolves back. And wolves are highly prolific and they're extremely adaptive. Um, that's their superpower. I try and hit that home, but wolves can live just about anywhere. And they do, right? From the Arctic down through the deserts. Um, so really the only thing that reduces their distribution is human tolerance, right? We manage wolves at a social carrying capacity, not at a biological carrying capacity. Wolves can live off of our garbage, you know, and in many places they do. They live uh, in the dumps, they eat chickens and dogs and cats, and, you know, they don't behave as, as wild um, predators like we envision them, but they're capable of doing that, just like the coyote. Um, but we're not okay with that, you know, we have that, we have that social threshold that we say, uh, it's, it's not okay for us to have wolves in particular areas. And uh, since the reintroduction of wolves into the Yellowstone country, we've occasionally had wolves disperse into Utah and down through Colorado and the other various states. Um, but they don't last long because the wolves are looking for a mate. You know, they're looking for an opportunity to establish a pack of their own. And if it's just a, a solo wolf, you know, what, what's the point in hanging around if you don't find a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Um, so Utah, just like most states in the West, actually has a, a wolf management plan. Uh, states are required to have a species management plan for it to be considered um, viably delisted from the Endangered Species Act list. Um, so wolves... Uh, have been recognized as a native species to Utah. Um, in fact, they are delisted in northern Utah as part of a, the 2011 congressional rider that was passed that delisted them in Idaho and in Montana. Um, but in the rest of the state of Utah, they're still protected by the ESA. And um, the sentiment towards the wolf um, by some uh, vocal public citizens uh, is not super favorable towards the wolf and um, anyway Utah is is not proactively looking to reintroduce wolves into the state but um, when they show up uh, once they're delisted then the idea is to, to manage them accordingly. Um, Utah's a little bit different because unlike Idaho and Montana and, and Wyoming it's a very arid state it's the second driest state in the country um, therefore, our, our game herds are smaller, our elk population and our deer herds are smaller compared to neighboring states. Um, my personal opinion, just because we're also a more populous state, we've got more people, about 3 million plus people compared to like Wyoming's half a million people. Um, again, I think that the numbers of an established wolf population would be very low, it would probably be I guess between 100 and 200 wolves. I've got no data to back that up, but that's personal opinion. Again, because of the landscape, the aridity, because of the number of people on the landscape. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you to touch on. Is how can they? I mean, can Utah even really avoid it at the point when Colorado's reintroduction has been successful, and then there's this kind of connectivity from New Mexico all the way to. The Canadian border. I mean, how can any Western state really avoid having to face this migration at some point? I mean, it's the next, it's the next state over. Right. Yeah. We've you got, know. um, you know, wolves in the, the Northern Rocky Mountain states, Wyoming and Idaho, which are adjacent to Utah. And then we reintroduced, uh, the subspecies Canis lupus bailei, the Mexican wolf into Arizona and New Mexico, right. 1998. And, those states are adjacent to Utah. And Colorado yeah. currently is uh, talking about reintroducing wolves by the end of 2023, and they have an established mm -hmm. pack that migrated down on its own. Yeah. So yeah, you've got you know five adjacent states next to Utah with wolves. Um, it's inevitable, especially uh, given the likelihood of wolf distribution off the western slope in Colorado, to have wolves come into the state of Utah. 
And when that happens, the state will respond uh, according to their wolf management plan. So yeah, they'll, they'll manage the species accordingly. And uh, mm-hmm. we'll just see how long it takes for the numbers to grow to the point of really some, some bigger discussions. Yeah, you mentioned how adaptable wolves are, you know, sort of adjacent to coyotes. In your mind, what in all the research you've done, what is what do you think made wolves susceptible to sort of that mid-1900s extirpation? Why did they succumb to that when coyotes didn't? Yeah, um, so 1915 to 1931, the U.S. Bureau of Biological Survey was working to eradicate all predators, right? So they exterminated the wolf and mountain lions, and they, they did. They worked really hard on uh, smaller predators, coyotes being a primary target, but also skunks and other things, right? Um, coyote, yeah, really, they work just everyone. <laughs> they work pretty efficiently, and you know what made them good at what made us? I shouldn't say them because it's, it's us. It's our all of our shared history. What made us so good at eradicating wolves and other predators was. Um, our techniques. It wasn't the use of bullets and traps. It was poison, right? Um, that's really what was the most effective tool at killing the wolf is um, we'd lace meat with strychnine or a compound called Pen80. And then a wolf pack comes around and eats it and then they're all dead, right? Um, so it's, it's poison was what really killed off our, our carnivore populations. Now, coyotes are interesting because they have what's known as fission-fusion behavior. So they're kind of like humans in this regard where um, wolves really depend on a pack. They really need this gregarious unit, this cooperative breeding unit in order to support one another. Um, Coyotes left alone live in packs, but if we persecute them, those packs fragment and they're capable of living independently. Um, So, I think that that is, you know, really where things began to change is we killed off wolves, which was advantageous to coyotes, right? Wolves hate coyotes. Uh, so if you remove the, the top dog, the wolf, then the coyote suddenly has more resources and territory to expand in, and it's capable of living uh, more rec- reclusively and independently than the wolf might. Yep. I think that's the consensus we've heard. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When you're out doing your research or when you're in the general public, Aaron, how do you balance the discussion of the need for wolves in the landscape and also the sensible management? Because I feel like you can't, you're able to sit in the middle in that way because you've, again, because of the lineage that you have and then moving into the biological field where you are now, you have this unique perspective. How do you balance any of those conversations, any of that information that needs to get out there? What's your approach if any of those discussions ever come up to you personally? Well, it it does come up a lot. I think what I try to do, what is most important to me, is to recognize that wolves are animals, right? That they are a creature just like a mule deer, just like a raccoon, and they have their own agenda and they don't care about us. They're not the ones in conflict, right? We're the ones in in conflict because we're the ones trying to decide how we can coexist with them or whether we should even have them. Um, So I try and be very realistic and I, I present to myself and then to my audience the fact that wolves are a magnificent native species and they are very difficult to live with. Um, that's a fact, right? They don't kill um, needlessly. They're not, you know, monsters in the forest. They're decimating our elk herds. Um, depredation on livestock is not as common as uh, some anti-wolf people think, but it happens. And all it takes is is you as an individual to be impacted by wolf depredation for all of your worst nightmares to to be realized. And that's, that's something that I can relate to and I can feel for people. Um, this loss of identity, this, this very bizarre and complicated, ironic struggle between what I call the New West and the Old West. Um, the New West is interested in 
um, conservation, and they're afraid of biodiversity loss, losing a carnivore like the wolf. Um, but the Old West is also afraid. They're afraid of losing a, a lifestyle, um, identity, something that's been a part of their heritage. They're afraid of losing control of the land to, to change, right? And it uh, really doesn't have anything to do with the wolf at all. It just, it's all about values. And it's not necessarily that people hate the wolf. It's just that they have different values. Um, the hunter might value the elk more than the wolf. The rancher might value the cow more than the wolf. And conversely, the environmentalist might value the wolf more than the cow and the elk, right? Um, so recognizing that we are a storytelling species, that we're humans and that we have values and worldviews and, and that despite the data, we're always going to be conflicted and we're all, always going to have our own opinions. I think that it's important to realize that every viewpoint ought to be taken taken seriously and considered seriously. And it's important for us to try and find uh, ways that we can compromise, you know? As unpopular and unsavory as this might sound, I, I cannot, I cannot foresee a world where we have wolves, but we don't hunt them. Um, I just, I don't see that being a realistic possibility, especially since we regulate our deer and our elk populations through hunting. Right. And your wolf is way more adaptive than an elk and a deer. Like I said, they can live in your backyard. So if if we don't somehow manage or regulate wolf populations, there's going to be more conflict. Uh, I wish it was otherwise. You know, I want wolves to live everywhere. But the reality is, is there's some places where they won't be able to live because society won't tolerate them. And uh, yeah, that's just trying to be very pragmatic about that right if i'm going to be completely candid i don't know what recovery looks like in the lower 48 states right you can't use yellowstone really as an example because it's a national park a 2.2 million acre park and most states don't have that um, <laughs> right so i don't know what recovery looks like i don't know how much give and take there will be but i do believe it's possible but it can only be possible when we have civil discussions with people across the board who have different saying, I get it. This is my view. This is my value. I hear you. I hear yours. Now let's try and find a way to have it. What are your thoughts on Colorado? Because you just got brought into that as a, as an associate researcher. Cause I know that I, I know it's almost, some of the groups that we've spoken to, Wolves of the Rockies a couple of times, other individuals who are more in in the project, knee deep in the project, uh, they are, it seems as though they're trying to do what we're talking about, doing the due diligence of speaking to every group, making sure everyone has their voices heard. I know there's stuff posted back and forth every day about this this group wants certain limits, this group wants certain management. How do you... From I guess from an outsider perspective to someone who now has just been brought in, what are your thoughts on that introduction? How it's being handled? How do you, if if you could see from your biological perspective, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, firstly, I can say that we have the tools to mitigate livestock depredation, right? We, in fact, that's one of my my research points for my doctorate is um, we have tools. Right. So I, I really don't feel like I don't feel like it's a livestock issue. It's often understood to be that way. And I think that's because people who are unfamiliar with with wolves and with livestock um, can relate to that narrative. Right. Like, get it. if you don't like wolves and you got a cow that gets eaten by a wolf. You know, I understand that. Uh, but most ranchers that I deal with are fine. You know, they they don't like the wolves and they don't like depredation to be sure, but they're also patient and they're willing and they're dedicated to try and find something that works. Um, what I am a little bit more concerned about in Colorado is the hunting community. Um, and that's just because there are so many people in Colorado that are already competing amongst each other to go hunting, right? If you're unfamiliar with hunting, you have to draw 
a tag, you got to get a license and you got to draw a tag. And, you know, there's only so many deer and elk on the landscape. So the more hunters there are, the less likely you are to be able to go hunting because you're competing with other hunters for the opportunity. And uh, there's definitely a very, very realized concern among the hunting community that hunting is getting harder, right? There's more people, there's more people to compete with. And now you're talking about reintroducing a native large carnivore on the landscape that I'm also going to have to compete with. I think the reality of competition between a hunter and, and uh, a wolf is, is not there to be concerned about, right? So wolves just hunt differently. Um, elk management, the units, as we've seen in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming, the objectives of all of those populations are, are at or above what the goals of the agencies are. So the reality is there, there won't be a conflict, but the perception is that there will be a conflict, if that makes sense. Because people who don't understand ecology, who don't understand um, wolf hunting patterns and behavior, um, they see the wolf as another complication and uh, an already difficult um, sport, right? So that's a social issue. It's not a logistical issue, but it's a social issue, but it's a real social issue. And so I, I hear the hunting community, and I'm a hunter, you know, and I, I have lots of friends. I work for a hunting organization, an agency, right? Um, and I, I just hear their concerns, and I say, you know what? It's, that's a valid concern. Again, it's not a, it's not a, it's not going to happen the way that you're afraid it's going to happen. But socially speaking, yeah, it's it's something that um, I can understand why you're you're not excited to have wolves back in the landscape. So that's that's an issue. And then lastly, I am also a little bit concerned because of a lack of support on voting day when it came to bringing wolves back. I mean, it passed like what a 50.6% majority or something. Um, that's just not, you might have a lot of people who support the wolf, but it, if you're not going to be proactive in the community at defending the wolf, then I don't understand why you would want the wolf back. Right. It takes everyone's voice in order to try and, make this happen. And if the majority of the constituents are, are voting in opposition to the wolf reintroduction, um, that's not very good, right? That's just a long way of saying that if you really want wolves back, you gotta be proactive. You can't just sit on your pants and be ambiguously uh, involved. So in your mind, what are ways that say the ordinary Coloradan or, or somebody who is passionate about this introduction or reintroduction, what, what, what are the talking points? What are ways that you can help guide people in a way to have these conversations with, if they see ranchers or they talk with people who they know who are hunters, what's, what's the way that you can see socially these barriers can sort of be broken down, listened to, and then really find a middle ground. Because again, as you've stated and many others that we've had that Stephen has mentioned, we all come back to this same issue that it's a human problem. And it's a human social issue is that we can't seem to get out of our own way to let the animal be it the wolf, bear, coyote, whatever it may be, just live its life the way that it used to live, you know, 200 and some odd years ago where we weren't colonizing and doing these things. I think that we need to be kind. Um, I think that we need to stop being nasty to each other. We need to have civil discussions. And it's, unfortunately, it's going to take us, wolf advocates, to be brave enough to start being kind stop being nasty it might take a while before the other side gets on board with it and maybe they won't get on board with it but I, I sincerely believe that 
that the truth is somewhere in the middle. And if we can have civil discussions and if we can listen to people who don't want the wolf and we can, we can hear what they're saying, it's not that they're afraid of the wolf. It's not that they're angry about the wolf. It's that they're afraid of losing something. They're afraid of disempowerment, right? Not being able to control within their backyard, having outsiders dictate to them what is happening, what isn't happening. Like it's fear, right? These people are afraid and they're not afraid of a wild dog. That's that's (laughs) not it, right? No. It's more of an existential threat. And if we can show one another as a community that we actually care, that we're not here to to disempower one another, we're trying to, to connect, you know, walk in the rancher or the hunter's shoes for a while. Someone who's been hunting for generations and they're trying to get their grandson or their granddaughter into hunting and they're concerned that they won't be able to. There's more variables, right? Again, just, you just have to listen. You have to do your best to try and listen and to to be good to each other. And uh, I think we can make some progress if we do that. Yeah, it's 100% true. Yeah, it's so tough. I just have a couple couple things, Aaron. When you, what you said just before to, and we've heard this a couple times, right? Is wolves wolves are wild dogs. That's where all of our dogs come from. So it's still, and again, hundred plus episodes in, it still amazes me that we humans can't get around this this wild dog fear and that. It, it doesn't resonate with bear. Maybe it does in certain places. I, I can't speak for everyone, but it doesn't seem as though grizzlies, mountain lions, I mean, those are the two other main apex predators on the landscape. It, it just seems to all fall into the Canis lupus wolf category where this is, this is, the, this is the scapegoat that we are going to use for every problem that's there. I just don't, I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around why it's the one predator. And I don't want I don't want the I don't want the the blame taken off of the wolf and put on another apex predator. That's not my point. It's just it's a, it's still puzzling to me that it's all fallen to one. And that this is I guess because like you said, it's the the symbol of the West. It's this wild apex creature that has been colonizing this continent for thousands upon, th- you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if there was a question there, but it's just puzzling to me. I mean, do you, do you have any insight to that? I mean, from your generational aspect, from your family, what it may be and why that is? Well, I do have an idea. Um, firstly, I think wolves are conspicuous, which um, kind of contradicts what I, Began talking to you about on this podcast okay, that um, wolves are hidden in the forest. But uh, compared to like the mountain lion, which really is a true predator, wolves are just, they're conspicuous, they're loud, they're messy, they're noisy, and they're clumsy. Um, one big myth that I try and break down is that wolves are excellent predators. They're not. You know, no. They don't have the anatomy for it. They haven't evolved to be excellent predators, um, but they're social. And that is something that we find unique. And I, I agree with you. It's, it's very ironic that man's best friend is also man's worst enemy. Um, but I think that most people see this conspicuous predatory animal on the landscape. And without understanding their biology and their ecology, they assume that they're gangs right? They're gangs or mobs of wolves that get together and they devour everything in their path. You know, they're killing machines and uh, they just run loose and wild and they gobble up everything in their path. The reality is, is that a wolf pack is a family unit, you know, very similar to the human family. unit, And uh, you've got mature breeding adults, a mom and a dad, you know, you've got a couple of generations of offspring, maybe a grandma or grandpa, an uncle or an aunt. Um, but people think of them as, you know, dozens of 
free ranging, feral, rabid killing machines. Um, that perception is totally wrong. I also think that wolves being awkward as hunters, it doesn't do them any favor, right? Um, we don't ever see mountain lions killing an elk or killing a deer. As ambush predators, it's just not obvious, but wolves are cursorial predators. They chase their prey down and they grab at the prey with whatever, you know, they grab at whatever bit is flopping or flying around. And if you've ever had the opportunity to watch a wolf kill something, and I have, it's ugly, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think wolves are an important part of our environment, but for people who are often removed from nature, and that can include run, uh, ranchers and hunters, um, they're not used to seeing things die in a, a pretty hard way. You know, it's not a bullet, right? It doesn't, it doesn't drop after one shot. It's not clean. And sometimes your prey doesn't die. You know, it gets away and it's maimed. And it's just, it's difficult for you to be like really okay with that kind of violence. <laughs> so again, I think that unfortunately for the wolf, those are two uh, aspects of it that, aren't necessarily in its favor. The fact that it lives in groups, uh, it, it propagates this misunderstanding that these groups are, you know, they're crazy and lawless and, and they're going to gobble everything up when the reality is the exact opposite. And the fact that they're not biologically as successful, anatomically as successful at hunting as lions and tigers etc they're more clumsy when it comes to uh, hunting and killing their prey and that that can be pretty grotesque for people to see yeah i'm glad you mentioned that actually uh just the way that wolves hunt wolves are technically i mean not super efficient hunters they don't have daggers on their paws like a cat they can't supinate the final blow takes a little bit there's a lot of what would you call it, John? There's a lot of struggle. And I think that does play a part. The, the ranchers and the hunters that I know are just, they're, these people are tough as nails. I mean, I live, with, I live on a ranch. I live with ranchers. They're, they're just tough, tough folks. But when it comes to thinking of a wolf pack killing one of their cattle, just the vision, the, 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 the way your imagination plays with, with how a wolf pack takes down their prey. You know, if you're in the comment sections of a wolf post, well, from hunters, one of the main things you see is, have you ever seen one of these things take down an elk? And this, this like judgment of how wolves hunt, the second most popular comment you see is, well, make sure you keep your dogs inside if you want these wolves there, right? And it's like the irony of, we'll just give our lives for our freaking dogs. I mean, I would, you know, and I love my dogs. Um, but at the expense of their, their origins, it's just, a, it's a, it's a really interesting topic and it never ceases to be interesting to me. Just Right. You're right. We, um, you can't get involved in large carnivore biology and conservation more importantly, without, um, being willing to take a couple hits and say, you know, what? It's, wolves are cool, but they can be hard to live with. And, uh, they are dangerous and they do kill in an ugly way. And you know, there's some, there's some parts that about them that we as a, a modern you know, 21st century audience just can't, can't really uh, swallow very well. We can't digest it easily. So. And cats are way more dangerous, you know? know. I'd rather be in the <laughs> right. middle of a pack of wolves than with one tiger. Are you kidding right. me? But there's something about how they kill. It's just so clean and so precise, they're, you know? I don't know. Quiet, it's right? They're hidden. It's secretive. Yeah. That's the thing. It's secret. You're right. It, 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 it's we, just quiet. You don't see yeah. it. You just don't Never see, see it. it. Yeah. You never see it, man. Uh, all these po all these points are. It's yeah, this yeah, we fit everything. It's just, it's like man, it's been so crazy uh, just to go in depth with this with you, Aaron. My last question for you before uh, I want everybody to get your socials and stuff. But we'll do that in a minute. Um, my last question is: When you hear the word wolf, what is the thing or things that come to your mind? Oh 
man. I, I break all my own rules when I say this because as I mentioned before, humans are a storytelling species. You know, that's what makes us unique. And we take something as complicated as the wolf and we, we generate you know, cognitive symbols trying to define it. And I, I want to move away from that, but I have to be honest that to me, the wolf is wildness, right? It's wildness that tenaciously persists on an anthropocentric landscape, a human-dominated landscape. And uh, I just take up my hat off and I salute this, this creature that has an uphill battle constantly even with humans not being in the equation, um, they're not the best of hunters. You know? Not only that, but they're aggressive towards one another. Just everything is, is so difficult for them, and yet they continue to persist. Um, wow, how cool. How cool. What a metaphor for life. And that's it. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, Aaron, where can people follow you uh, do you have any papers that people can read? Where where are there things that and places where people can uh, see your work, follow you on your on your journeys if you post? And oh yeah, I'm not you do. not super proactive on social media. I have uh, an Instagram account, just my name, C Aaron Bot, um, and uh, I'm a student at Utah State University, so my research comes out of there. Um, I also encourage people to check out Yellowstone National Park's official wolf reports. They're published annually. Um, my contributions are in there as well, at least for the last four years. And um, yeah, you can learn a little bit about what's going on in, in the wolf world by just following that. We'll have all that stuff in the description so you guys can check in on the on the wolf reports. And I'll put Aaron's Instagram in there. He probably won't get back to you, but we'll see what happens. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe we'll get him to be a social, social bird on there. Uh, Aaron, just stick around uh, for a couple minutes once we sign off. I just want to uh, talk to you about a couple things. Um, but thank you for joining us. Thank you for spending yeah, time. Man. And uh, this was great, man. It was so great to meet you. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for what you're doing. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. How's to you all out there? And Stephen, I'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information. 